All right, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, if you've got them. If you've not got them, if you're visiting with us, that's all right. Just uh, nick somebody else's or just listen up anyway. But let's turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 2. When it comes to selling things, there are, I think, a whole range of different styles, aren't there? of the way people sell. If you go to Hornsby Town Centre, you see that in operation pretty quick. There's the hard sell. That's the charity workers that stand by the, uh, the um, clock tower thing. Have you seen them? Oh, it's awful. They, you know, you walk through and they just follow you around and they go, hello, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And you think, yeah, that's really, really awkward. I'm English. Would you please leave me alone? You know, it's really horrible when they just follow you around and you feel obliged to have to do whatever it is they want you to do because they're sort of breathing in your face. And then there's the soft sell. We also feature that at Westfield Hornsby. Um, That's the people that like to rub your hands and things on your nails and your skin. You know what I'm saying? And they go up to you and suddenly you've never met them before, but they want to touch your hand. And, oh, these are the nicest hands I've ever seen. You're like, really? They look pretty rough. And they want to talk to you about your life. Are you married? You know, when's your birthday? All that type of thing. And then eventually, because you think they're your best friend, um, they say, you know what? Um, And you could just buy this for $100. And how many would you like, sir? Well, none, really. But that's the soft sell. And that goes on in our city. And that, but my favorite when it comes to selling is the style which is called reducing to the ridiculous. And I heard about this many years ago. It was brought over by an American guy who actually bought in the early 90s a pots and pans business. And this business was really struggling. And it was really struggling because the price of the pots and pans were like seriously expensive. In the early 80s, which is a long time ago when people didn't have a lot of money, they, these pans cost $500. And for a pan set in the early 80s, that was quite a bit of money. And so he took on this business, he bought this business out because he really believed these pans were good and they could be sold for $500. And so his technique was as follows. He, he invited all his mates around his home and anybody that might be interested in the pans. He cooked them a meal. And then at the end of the meal... He brought them over to the pans, and he said, you should come and have a look at the pans. They've all had a lovely time. They're all relaxed, and they're all his friends. You should check out these pans. And he says, actually, you know, I've just brought a company, and we're actually selling these pans, and they're extremely good pans. You've obviously eaten out of these pans um, this evening. And I said, yeah, it was really nice food. And how much are these pans? He says, well, you know, they're $500. And I go, oh, my gosh, you know, they start choking on their food, all that type of stuff. And he says, but hang on a minute, hang on, wait, well, think about it. There's a lifetime guarantee with these pans. So think with me for a moment. Say these pans last 10 years. That's like $50 a year for a set of amazing pans if they last just 10 years. I mean, imagine then, let me ask you, ma'am, how, how often do you use your pots and pans? And maybe once a day, something like that. But let's just call it 250 times a year. So let's assume that there's 100 days a year where you don't use them at all. And, oh, well, I use them at least that. And, okay, so, so per day, your pans are costing you about 20 cents. For a good set of pans, 20 cents. That's really good. Now, this is where he looked the men in the eye. And he said, men, let me ask you, when you go out for a meal and you take your wife out for a lovely meal, do you tip the waiter? I said, oh, yes, I, I always tip the waiter. And yeah, well, how much would you tip the waiter? 10%, 15%, 20%? Well, I meant 10%, 15%. So if you spend $50, you're going to tip the waiter about $10, somewhere around that. Oh, something like that. Well, sir, let me ask you, is your wife worth a 20-cent tip every day? (laughs) That is a selling technique 
called reducing to the ridiculous. You make a big figure sound like no big deal. $500 suddenly becomes 20 cents, and 20 cents seems far more manageable than $500, and they reduce to the ridiculous something that's so huge in the first place. Well, the reason why I mention that is because as we come to this scripture, and particularly this scene, the nativity scene, I think we all face a temptation to reduce this to the ridiculous. See, I, like you, have a Christmas tree in my home. At the top of our Christmas tree, we have a star. It's usually broken and wonky, but there it is, right at the top of the tree. And other people have angels at the top of your tree. I grew up with an angel at the top of our tree. Um, growing up, it was made out of loo roll. Um, it had the sort of center bit of the loo roll, sort of you know, candy floss things around it, and it was the angel. And that's fun. But the challenge is it's moments like that that can reduce the ridiculous. Moments like this that are in Scripture, which that angel is meant to point to. I, like you, have been to hundreds, if not thousands, of nativity scenes. I've been there as a young man, as a shepherd, with my dad's belt around my head and a tea towel. You know, we've all done it. We've all watched children who we know, either our own or friends or family, on stage. And all you want to do is your son comes out as Joseph and your daughter comes out as Mary is wave at them because they're carrying the plastic baby Jesus. So you wave and they wave back and you're like, oh, the angels forgot their words. Isn't this fun? And they're going, hello, mom, instead of saying the words. We all like those things. There are loads of fun. But again, the challenge is what they point to, which is Luke chapter 2, can then be reduced to the ridiculous. It can start to seem stupid that this is just a kid's story. This is no big deal. This just points to an angel at the top of a tree. Well, my friends, as we come to this text today, I want to encourage you to do all you can to not reduce this to the ridiculous and to be able to come at this then with fresh eyes. And that's my exhortation and prayer right at the outset, that we would look at this as fact and history as if we've never seen a nativity and never seen an angel on a tree because this is profound scripture. And so let's read together from verse 1 through to the end of verse 20 of Luke chapter 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest 
and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for this awesome and inspiring scene. Lord, would you bring it alive in our hearts today? Would you help us not to reduce it to the ridiculous, but to see it in all the glamour and awesome and amazingness it really is? In Jesus' precious name, amen. That story that I just read out is really familiar. And whatever's happened in our lives, wherever we've lived, we've probably heard it hundreds of times and have that image, whether we like it or not, of the nativity scene in our minds, of the singing in our minds, of the Christmas tree in our minds. And yet I do want us to guard ourselves from reducing this to the ridiculous because what we've just read in that text is, I believe, a most incredible and terrifying moment. In fact, I submit to you it's one of the most incredible and terrifying moments that have ever taken place on this earth. It's written about to us by Dr. Luke. Luke is a physician. He's employed by Theophilus. And Luke, is, having been employed by Theophilus, who is really just a high-up governor in Rome, has been commissioned with the task of going and visiting all these eyewitnesses, going to talk to people about what is actually they've seen with their own eyes about Jesus and what took place. And what he writes in response to Theophilus, having done all of his research, is this book. An historical account put together from eyewitnesses that is written to Theophilus and now us so that he may have certainty about what he has heard and so that we may have certainty about what we've heard, so that we may know that this actually happened and that Jesus Christ really did come to earth And so three points this morning. It's not complicated. It's three parts to this story. The birth, the proclamation, and the response. So let's look, first of all, at the birth, which is verses 1 through 7. You see, the story begins with us being introduced to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the Barack Obama of the day. He's a dude that when he says something, everybody pretty much does it. He has great power in the land. And he has decided, most likely because of issues of war and because of issues of taxation, that he wants everybody to go back to where they were born to take place in a census. He wants to get much more of a handle on where everybody actually came from to get a grip on on where everybody lives and where they're from. And so as a result of that, Mary and Joseph have to make their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Joseph himself, having been betrothed to Mary, is from the lineage of David. So he must resume his purpose of going to Bethlehem. And this trip for Mary and Joseph would have been a huge one and a difficult one. They would have traveled about 120 kilometers. It would have been incredibly hot by day, incredibly cold by night. It would have taken them around three days. Most of it would have been on foot. Some think it may be of been on the back of a donkey it may have been but most of us only think that because we sing a little donkey every year but the bible doesn't really talk about them being on the donkey 
But one thing's for sure, this would have been an, an arduous trip. I mean, imagine it. Mary is probably around 13 years old. That's the harsh reality. In Jewish tradition, you would get betrothed at about 13 and married at 15. So you've got a 13-year-old who is eight months pregnant, about to go 120 kilometers, and she is eight months pregnant at the time. Hot by day, cold by night. That's what's going on here in this scene. Suddenly changes the dramatic scene from the nativity a bit. That is full on. She's about to do the, the north run on the back of a donkey or walking. And yet when she gets there, when she arrives, she does indeed make it with Joseph. Shortly after then, she gives birth. Look at me. Look at, we'll look at verse 6 again. And while they were there, i.e. in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, that bit looks like just such a lovely little scene. Isn't it nice? She gives birth to this little boy, wraps him in swaddling cloths, pops him in the manger. Oh, it's a family photo. But think about the reality of what is actually taking place here. 13 years old, a guy who she's not actually married to yet, but they are betrothed. But as they rock up into Bethlehem, people know who Joseph is because they know he's from the lineage of David. He would have had family and relatives there and they would have been very aware that you two aren't married and she's very pregnant. That's why there was no room in the inn. They didn't want anything to do with her. They wanted to push her aside. They wanted to move her away. They were disgraced of what was taking place. And so they put them in the in what was effect a borrowed stable and instead of then giving birth in a nice warm home with midwives and family around her and then having given birth put this child in a nice warm cot this young girl gives birth to a baby she then wraps him in swaddling cloths and basically puts him in a cow trough which would be all that would be there this was a dramatic scene and a full scene This 13-year-old is giving birth in a borrowed stable. You know, this is a shocking scene when you actually look at what it really is. For Mary, this is indeed a shocking scene. But it's also a shocking scene as you realize it's here in this moment that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself, is born. The Magnificent One, the One who has been with the Father from the start of eternity, The one who sits at the right hand of the Father in this moment is born through the birth canal of a 13-year-old into the squalor of a borrowed stable and then put in a manger. This is an incredible and dramatic scene where God himself, the almighty Son of God, becomes flesh, a human being just like me and you. This is the moment when he's born. And this is amazing. The one who at the start of creation breathed out the sun would in this moment be born and would go on to know as a man what it's like to sit under the heat of the midday heat that it gives. This is the moment who the one who breathed out the galaxies was born into a world that as he grows up he would get to look at them from our perspective and see the stars in the midnight night. This is the moment when the one who weighed the mountains on scales would be born as a human and would then grow up knowing what it is to climb them and find yourself thirsty and tired at the end of the ordeal. 
This is the moment when the one who created and numbered every grain of sand and numbers them would be born and know as he gets older then what it's like to have that same sand stuck to your feet so that you rub it off at the end of a day. This is the moment when God became man. This is the moment when he became a baby. And we then know what it's like to grow as a baby and a child and a teenager and an adult, just like we do. This is the moment when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords became a human. Now, that's an incredible scene, is it not? It's a dramatic scene. We should never reduce it to the ridiculous. This is incredible. And yet one of the things I've been thinking about this week is, what must it have been like to be Mary? What on earth must Mary have been thinking? You're 13 years old. You find out from an angel that you're going to get pregnant, but you've never been with a man. You do get pregnant. And you start to put on weight as this baby comes into you. Everybody around you starts to question, what on earth has gone on here? Is this some type of joke? You're saying you haven't been intimate. Give me a break. But you know you were encountered by this angel and this angel told you that you were going to give birth even as a virgin. And you're also told that that birth isn't just going to be any old birth. This is a special birth. This is the son of the God of the Most High. This is going to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is going to be the Savior of the world. And then you've walked 120 kilometers with a guy that you're not even married to yet, you arrive in Bethlehem, you're shunned by the people around you, you arrive into the squalor of a borrowed stable, you give birth, and then you put this baby in the only things you've got, swaddling cloths and a cow trough. What must she have been thinking in that moment? You know, one of the things that I've been wondering if she was probably thinking, and I think the text would support it because of where it goes next, is, you know, this whole thing about the angel? Did I dream that up? Is this real? Is this really the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Is this, you know, has something happened to me that I was not aware of? That's what I'd be thinking in much lesser things. Is this for real? Have I made a mistake? You know, I think God in his grace then and in great kindness towards Mary and towards us, wants Mary in this moment to know with great certainty and peace that she has indeed given birth to the Messiah, that she has indeed given birth to the creator of heaven and earth, that she has indeed given birth to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so whilst all this is going on in Bethlehem, there is another scene starting to happen around in the surrounding fields, another scene that is beginning to unfold And that's really scene two, namely the proclamation, which comes from verse 8 through to verse 12. Look with me and read with me from verse 8 and verse 9. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. I mean, imagine the scene. This is pitch black 
It's not like Sydney where you go out at night down the middle and you're like, you can't see the stars because of all the lights everywhere and you can't see it. This is in the middle of nowhere, no street lamps. It is absolutely pitch jet black. The only thing that's, that's allowing you to see anything at all would be the moon and the stars. And these dudes, these shepherds, have gathered together at the, the, the end of a long day. And what's important to realize is shepherds in this season, and these were the burly men of the day. These were the bare grills of the day. These guys were not softies. They weren't washing their hands with fairy liquid. These guys were hardened men. They were practically bordering on a level par with criminals. That's how hard they were. That's what they did. If you can't do anything else, what do you do? Well, I'm going to be a shepherd because it's a hard man's job. It's hard labor. It's difficult work. And so these burly men gather together at the end of a long day. They've protected their sheep. They've put their sheep to sleep. They've gathered together as men in the evening under the night sky, under the dark banner of heavens. And into that scene, in an absolute moment, comes the dazzling heavenly light of an angel. Not the little thing on the top of our Christmas trees, but a full-on, true angel. And the instant response is, fear. And that shouldn't surprise us at all. You see, so often, because of what we see on TV or at the front of Christmas cards, unhelpfully, we think of angels as slightly overweight toddlers with wings, don't we? That's what we do. And sometimes they have a horn in their mouth. Sometimes they have like a little harp. And you think, oh, isn't that lovely? You don't see that anywhere in the Bible. In the Bible, angels are full on. They are huge. They are epic. And when anybody encounters an angel in the Bible, one or two things happens. Number one, they fall to their ground and think that they're actually seeing God. And so they start worshipping them. Or they run around like small girls crying in fear. Well, these shepherds go for option two in this moment. They're running around going, oh my gosh, they are afraid of what's going on because they're not encountering an overweight toddler with wings. They are encountering an angel of heaven. And they are terrified. They are scared immediately. And so the angel starts communicating to them. He says, fear not. That's what all angels say at the start of opening lines, because everybody's so scared. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. Don't be afraid. I'm bringing you great news. Shepherds, listen up to me, because you don't need to be afraid. I'm not God. I'm just a messenger. And I'm bringing you good news. And at verse 11, he tells them what that good news is. Here's the good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Shepherds, listen up. Don't be afraid. You need not be scared because I bring good news and the good news is unto you this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior is born for you. My friends, that's the best news that has ever been recorded in human history. That's the best news announcement that anyone, anywhere, at any time can can ever give you. That is the most encouraging thing that has ever collided with our humanity and the way it's been told. This announcement is truly incredible and is great news. It's what everybody had been waiting for prior to this moment. Anybody who knew their Old Testament has been waiting for this moment. They've been waiting for a savior. They've been waiting for one to come. 
All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. It only takes three chapters for mankind to screw up. That's not long in human history. Within three chapters, Adam and Eve decide, you know what, we've enjoyed being with God. It's all quite nice, but I'll give it a miss, thanks. I'm going to exchange him for the created. I'm going to exchange the creator for the created. And as a result and as a consequence, sin comes into the world and God removes them from the garden. He removes them from his premise. For he is holy, they are not. Mankind who is meant to find their joy and their identity and security with God in the garden has been removed. And yet as he removes them, he promises them and makes a prophecy over them and all mankind that you know what? One day one will come. And although the serpent, i.e. the devil, will bruise his heel, this one to come will crush his head. What great parting words as you leave the garden. It's the promise of a saviour. The promise of a serpent crusher. The promise of one who is going to come to make a way for them to come back into the garden and be with God. To find their identity and their joy in him. Well, Adam and Eve have a baby. They call him Cain, which in the Hebrew means here he is. But here he wasn't. He went on to kill his brother. That was certainly not the savior that everyone had been waiting for. Is it Abraham then? Nope. Great guy, but not him. Is it Isaac? No. Really good guy too, but not him. But what we do see in Genesis chapter 22 is that as Isaac is, Abraham is holding the dagger above Isaac and is about to plunge it in his son, an angel of the Lord stops him. And makes it clear that there is a substitute for Isaac in this moment. And it is a ram that has been caught in a thicket. A ram that we're told on by Jesus in John chapter 8. Ultimately, as this whole scene came about with all of Abraham's background knowledge, he understood that in some way, this ram indicates one to come. This ram indicates a savior who is going to come, who is going to be a substitute. We see that echoed then in the book of Exodus. As God's people are trapped in Egypt and God makes it clear that I am going to pull you out from Pharaoh under his slavery and his rule. And what I want you to do then is I want you to kill a firstborn lamb and I want you to spread its blood around the doorposts. And as the angel of death comes around this city, everybody is going to be killed apart from those who have trusted in the blood of the lamb. That's exactly what happens. And Jesus goes on to tell us that that lamb pointed to him. He is the Passover lamb. He is the one that everybody was pointing to. At the end of Genesis then, in Genesis chapter 49, we see also that the Savior is not just a substitute, but he's also a lion, a king. A king from the tribe of Judah, as was Joseph. A king is going to be born unto this nation. A king is going to be born that makes a way for them to be saved through his substitutionary sacrifice as a lamb. As the Old Testament unfolds over 500 years, there are 300 prophecies that talk about where the Savior is going to be born, what he's going to be like, what he's going to look like, how he's going to die. Everything points to this one to come. And here in this moment, an angel of the Lord communicating to the shepherds says, Here he is! The one you have been waiting for. Unto you, this day, here he is. What a scene. What an incredible scene. The one they've been waiting for has arrived. And the angel is screaming at them, communicating, here he is. 
The one who's going to make a way for you to be forgiven of your sin. For your sin to be passed as far as the east is from the west through faith in him. Here he is. The one who's going to make it possible for you to be reconciled to God who you've wronged in your sin. The one who's going to die in your place to make it possible for you to return to your identity in God. Here he is. The one who's going to come to make a way for you to be adopted into the very family of God. Here he is. He's been born to you this day. The one who's going to make it possible for you to know with absolute assurance that heaven is your home through faith in him and faith in him alone. Here he is. Mary's just given birth to him. The maker of heaven and earth has arrived. And so an angel reveals himself from heaven, declaring, here he is. You know, the fact that a savior has come is what makes Christianity so different from every other religion that exists. See, the Bible, if you believe it, which I do, if you believe it, then it points to the fact that we don't need a teacher We don't need a prophet. We need a savior. We need someone who's going to die as a substitute for us so that we can get back to God, the one that we've wronged. A teacher can't do that. A prophet can't do that. Only a savior can do that. Buddha is not going to sort that out. Muhammad never claims to even remotely sort that out. Confucius definitely can't sort that out. Jesus arrives and says, that's what I came for. I didn't come to be a prophet. I didn't come to be a teacher. I'm God, and I came to die for you. And there, in swaddling cloths, in a manger, he is. Now, what I love about what comes next in verses 13 to 20 is we see some dramatic and incredible responses to the fact that Jesus Christ has just been born and this angelic announcement that he has just been born. In verses 13 through 14, we see heaven responding. Look at it with me. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Tell you what, if the shepherds were... A little bit fearful a moment ago. Now they're really fearful because it's not just one. There's multitudes of these beings now revealing themselves from heaven. Heaven cannot contain the glory of the Lord. Heaven cannot contain the excitement of these angels in these moments. And so they break into our earth. They break in around this angel who's made this declaration. They can be restrained no longer. And they exude loudly glory to God in the highest. Glory to him. And on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. You know that phrase, glory to God in the highest? It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. Nowhere previously to this moment has it appeared. What they're basically saying as they break in from heaven to earth is, Father, God, we've seen you do some incredible things. We've seen you make things. We've seen you minister to your people. But nothing like this. Jesus has become a man, so glory to God in the highest. This is the best we've ever seen. You're incredible. And then they communicate to the shepherds and anybody else who will listen, and peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know what they're effectively saying there? 
They're effectively seeking to communicate to anybody who will listen. Hope has come for you. The one you've been waiting for has come. There's a way now for God to be pleased with you through this boy, through his son. Hope has come. Heaven can't restrain these people. These angelic hosts break in and respond. In fact, in verse 15 through 17, then the shepherds respond. Look at it with me. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Unsurprisingly, just like the rest of us, these shepherds make haste and head down to Bethlehem. Would you not, if you just had an angelic host appear, you're like, I'm going to go check this out. They make haste, they go straight there, they do nothing else. They find Jesus, just exactly as the angels have said they would. And they start telling Mary and anybody else that will listen, this is, this is the one we got told about. Mary, this is him. This is the one the angels have communicated to us. This is the son of the Most High. This is the Savior that we've all been waiting for. And then in verse 20, having communicated that to them, they leave, it says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. No one's having to say to these guys in this moment, Look, you know, it'd be really good to sing a few songs to Jesus. You know, I think just be a nice, nice response in this moment. They've encountered him. And they cannot be restrained. They don't need a worship leader in this moment. They're just like, I'm in. I'm praising God because we've seen him. We've seen Jesus. We've seen the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is incredible news. And so the shepherds respond. And in verse 19, which I think is so precious, Mary responds. See, in verse 18... As the shepherds communicate to Mary and those around that, you know what, this is the one clearly we've been waiting for. This is the one the angels have been telling us about. They're skeptical. They're not convinced. The whole way it's worded is, are you sure? But Mary, who could have understandably been skeptical prior to this moment, 13 years old, 120 kilometer walk, given birth allegedly to the Son of the God of the Most High, put him in swaddling cloths in a manger. As the shepherds communicate to her, she's not skeptical at all. Look at her response. It says, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. As Mary hears the shepherds talking to them this day, Her response is not skepticism. Her response is security. Faith. It is true. Just like the angel said. Just like the angel Gabriel with the court talked to me about it. It's now been confirmed. These shepherds have also encountered an angel. I've never met these shepherds before. This is the son of the God of the Most High. All the way through the end of this scripture from verses 13 through 20, there are responses. Heaven responds, shepherds respond, Mary responds. The question I have for you then, just in conclusion, is how then are you going to respond? 
How are you going to respond to this scene? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. See, the whole point of scripture is although men wrote it, the echo throughout scripture is that God was using those men. God was communicating through those men. So all scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. It is ultimately written by God. And accordingly, it is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This scripture still speaks to us today. God still communicates to mankind through these words today. And so what then is your response going to be to it? Because it's here for you. It's God communicating to you, not only to the original hearers, but to you now as well. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then my prayer for you is this day today, your response would be faith. Faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. A faith that will without question then lead to your genuine and complete salvation. You see, this whole book, I used to think as a kid that it was just a lot of either Bible stories that weren't very interesting or rules. And neither really attracted me to Christianity at all. So as a teenager, I wasn't into Christianity at all. I gave it a miss. And yet when I went back to the Bible and started reading it, I found out actually it's not full of all those stories. And actually it's not a book of rules. It's a book about the greatest rescue mission ever told. It starts with God making mankind and making us to find our security and joy and purpose in him. But then it erupts in Genesis 3 very quickly with mankind rejecting God, deciding they don't want anything to do with God, and are therefore put out of his security and joy and identity in him. But he promises very quickly a way back to him. And then all the Old Testament, as you read it, points to this one to come. And then we get the angel saying, here he is. And John the Baptist saying, that's true, here he is. And all these men saying, here he is. And Jesus himself saying, yes, here I am. And the rest of the Bible has nothing to do with rules and regulations. It has to do with Jesus Christ saying, I have come for you. I've made a way for you. You needed me not to be a teacher and a prophet, but a savior. That's why I came for you. And that's why I died for you. For God so loved the world, Jesus says in John 3:16, that he gave his only son, namely himself. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He made it very clear that you need a savior and I am your savior. So put your faith in me as your Lord and savior and you will have eternal life. You want to be forgiven? Put your faith in me. You want to be adopted? Put your faith in me. You want to be reconciled? Put your faith in me. You want to go to heaven? Put your faith in me. Is there any other way? No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, and a life, but the way. You need a savior. I'm the only one you get. So put your faith in me. The book of Romans, Paul says it this way. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friends, if you're an unbeliever, you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I urge you to do that today. Put your faith in him as your king 
Make him the king of your life and believe that he died for you, that you need a savior. That's why he came. And the promise of scripture all the way through is if you confess with your mouth that he is your king and you believe in your heart that he died for you, you will be saved. Is it that simple? Yes. Is it free? Yes. Will it cost you much? Everything. Your life will dramatically change. And I'm not going to pretend it won't. But what I do want you to understand is going to church will never make you a Christian. Giving money to charity will never make you a Christian. Reading your Bible will never make you a Christian. Praying will never make you a Christian. None of those things will ever work. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is the only way. I would argue I think that will affect your life. Don't worry about that. Worry about this. Where's your faith? Do you believe in him or do you not? Put your faith in him today. Make that your response. If though you're here today as a believer, you're a Christian, how do you respond? Well, here's what I want to submit to you. I think we respond by ensuring that we don't reduce this story to the ridiculous. That we don't reduce this nativity scene to the stupid. And that we not accordingly then reduce Christmas to the ridiculous. Now, Christmas is an incredibly busy time. And as a guy who's married with three kids, it is a very, very busy time. So much goes on. You go from one party to the next, one carol service to the next, one activity to the next, one present gift buying to the next. There are so many things going on over Christmas. And I don't mind that. It's great. I like living on adrenaline. I find it fun. You know, I'm awful. Let's just go for it. I'm kind of a razzed up type of guy. I don't mind being busy. I find that relaxing. I know it's strange, but it's true. And it's like that for all of us. We get super, super, super busy. But my friends, in the midst of that busyness, don't lose sight of what Christmas is all about. Don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus, in all reality, is the reason for the season. He is what everything points to. He is the one that came, the one that we're meant to look back to at this time and go, thank you. And so spend time, if you're a Christian, I urge you meditating on what Christmas is really about this Christmas. In the midst of the busyness, keep spending time in your word and give attention to the incarnation. And here's then what I think you can anticipate. I think you can anticipate as you spend time meditating on the incarnation, that just like it was for the angels and the shepherds and for Mary, thanksgiving and praise and faith will be your theme over Christmas. As you realize, for sure, hope has come. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that 2,000 years ago, you did come. And Lord, would you help us all, for every one of us in this room, not to reduce this moment and this familiar scene to the ridiculous. But instead, as Christians, would it be one of our treasures as we recognize This is the moment where you came after us. This is the moment you pursued us. This is the moment you were born into our earth. Not into royalty or a palace, but into the squalor of a borrowed stable on the greatest rescue mission ever told. 
Lord, I do pray then that we would all be dazzled by this truth this Christmas. And Lord, in the midst of the busyness, we would still pause and reflect on how good you've been to us. The greatest gift ever told. You personally coming after us. I said, Lord, thank you for doing that. Thank you. And in your precious name, would all glory go to you this Christmas. Amen.